Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week was the first presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden, and it was a messy affair. Both candidates were talking over each other and hurling insults. Even the debate moderator, Chris Wallace, got caught in the fighting. Many people walked away thinking that the performance from both candidates was embarrassing. President Trump refused to denounce white supremacist groups, and Joe Biden dodged a question about packing the Supreme Court. For a breakdown of the debate, we'll speak to Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. We had long been predicting that Donald Trump was going to just throw every attack he could imagine at his opponent long before he even had an opponent, and that that was going to be his sort of strategy, his way of winning, convince the American public that the other person is worse and that he might not be their favorite, but the other person is worse. And we saw that in practice yesterday. He was just tossing out attack after attack. He spoke almost nonstop for the 90 minutes of the debate frequently interrupting. Moderator Chris Wallace was trying to stop him and couldn't. And then we saw Joe Biden kind of offering two different approaches to how he handled Trump in the beginning, trying to sort of get down and tussle with him, offering criticism of the president and then calling him names. We saw him call him a clown, said he was the worst president ever, telling him to shut up, man. And then he sort of pivoted midway through the debate and we saw him do a little bit of a different tactic, talking directly to the camera, addressing the voters. And the response to that has been that was a little bit more positively received. People thought that that was a better approach for Joe Biden. I mean, at some point you have to kind of ignore being talked over and take charge on that front. Going back to Chris Wallace, I really respect him. I think he's a great newsman. and know a lot of people in the industry do. And he was put in a kind of no-win situation for the debate. But, you know, he just did a really bad job of controlling the scene there. And it's hard with the president. You know, he's going to blow over you and everything, but really couldn't contain anything that was happening on the stage. And I was just seeing a lot of people calling for things like, can we turn the mics off for the next debate? Can both campaigns maybe agree to something like that? The rules and the allowing their opponents to speak uninterrupted was negotiated by the campaigns. That was something they had agreed to, and it wasn't abided by. We did see on Wednesday the Commission on Presidential Debates, the sort of nonpartisan group that puts these events on, saying that they are looking at rule changes or some type of adaptions that would hopefully prevent this sort of melee that we saw on Tuesday night from happening again. That's still going to be very difficult. They have to get both campaigns to sign off on any changes, and maybe they could implement a mic shutoff. Maybe they could implement a clock. But keep in mind that Trump does what Trump does. And even though his campaign agreed to these rules, he was really just interrupting the entire hour and a half and didn't show any signs that it was an accident. I mean, this was intentional. He was doing it on purpose. He thought that was the best look for him. I completely felt the exasperation that Chris Wallace must have felt, especially when he confronted both of them and said, hey, look, guys, we need to get this under control. The campaigns agreed to these terms. Let's move on to some missed opportunities that happened Throughout the debate, obviously, it was hard to really get anything as far as policy or anything because everybody was just fighting so much. But the biggest missed opportunity, I think, obviously, is the president when Chris Wallace asked him to denounce white supremacy and militia groups. 
and the president just fumbled the whole thing. I know Joe, you know, he asked him, well, who? Give me a name. Joe Biden shouted out the Proud Boys. And then Donald Trump just said, Proud Boys, stand down and stand by. And the Proud Boys group took that as a calling to them. You know, they said, we stand with you, Mr. President. We're standing by. It was just a huge debacle for the president, I thought. That's right. You know, he was asked by Wallace to denounce these groups sort of broadly. He says, sure. So he doesn't sort of combat it at first. And then says, give me a name, as you said. And when they gave him a name, uttered this line that will absolutely be the probably the most remembered line of the first debate and could end up being the most remembered line of all of the 2020 debates, the standby. It was seen not as a denunciation, not as a call for them to stop the violence that they've perpetuated, but as a just wait, other orders are coming and I, I will tell you what to do later. On Wednesday, leaving the White House, President Trump said he had never heard of the Proud Boys. He didn't know who they were. He talks often about Portland. Trump does and what's happening there in Portland. This is a group that's been very active in Portland. So it's something that you would imagine he would have encountered before, given how often he talks about the city, but definitely was just a moment that I think was shocking and that has had a lot of fallout. I mean, we've seen Republican senators on the Hill on Wednesday saying that the president should have denounced white nationalism, saying that the president didn't mean what it sounded like he said. This was clearly not a good moment for the president, and that's been echoed by his party. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly the easiest lob that he received throughout the debate from Chris Wallace. You see it play out on the Internet. One of the Proud Boys organizers, his name is Joe Biggs, he went on to Twitter and saying, you know, we're standing by, we're ready to go. The president turned this into a call for Joe Biden to denounce Antifa. This is one of the things that the president has been hitting on a lot. And even on Wednesday, speaking to reporters, they gave him the opportunity again to denounce these types of groups. And he says, well, no, Joe Biden needs to denounce Antifa. That's the switch around that the president's trying to do. And I think that we're seeing sort of what happens in a campaign when the president doesn't want to say anyone he thinks will support him should do anything that they don't want to do. This is the ramifications of that. This is what we've seen before. And this is sort of the thing that really motivated Joe Biden. So it'll be interesting to see what it does to the electorate in the coming days. A missed opportunity for Joe Biden, I thought, when they were speaking about the Supreme Court and he was pressed on if he would pack the court, if he would add more justices to kind of even things out. Joe Biden dodged that question. He kind of tried to switch it around uh, to some other things. But I think that could have been an opportunity for him to just say one way or the other. He didn't. And this is something he has said before in the past that he would not do, that he would not pack the courts if he were president. Right. So Uh, why not just say it again? Yeah, it would be an easy thing to say again. There's footage of him saying it. But this is something that he wants the liberal part of his party to think he might do. And so that's why you don't see him countering Trump saying that he would pack the courts, because politically, Biden likes the ambiguity there. He likes the uncertainty. And even though it seems very unlikely that he would do it, I think there's a little bit of a hope that his liberal base believes Donald Trump when Donald Trump says that he would. So he could have easily taken that moment to say, nope, wouldn't do that. And he didn't. Definitely a a political move on the vice president's part. Let's talk about some points scored. For Joe Biden, I thought uh, obviously on the coronavirus, he was pretty strong. The president didn't really have too many rebuttals that broke through. And maybe one of his strongest moments, you know, he was being pressed on the Green New Deal and the left wing of the party. And Joe Biden clearly said, I am the Democratic Party right now, trying to take charge of it. So I thought that was a strong moment. 
It was. I think another strong moment that we saw during the debate was when he talked about his son, Hunter, and Bo talking about his son, Bo, served in the military. He has since died of brain cancer. And then Trump wanted to talk about Hunter. And Biden came back and said, let me tell you, my son has a drug problem. And I thought that was a very powerful moment, sort of taking Trump's repeated attacks against his son and trying to humanize it and turning to the camera and saying, those of you at home that have had a loved one with a drug problem also understand and making it something that you might not dislike Biden for, but instead have a little bit of empathy for him as someone who's, who's had that life experience. How about points for President Trump? I thought he stumped Joe Biden when he was asking him, you know, on the law and order thing, you know, what law enforcement agencies have endorsed you? And Joe Biden really didn't have any response to that. That was a big moment for the president. Biden couldn't list a law enforcement agency that has endorsed him. You know, that he has had the backing of firefighters. Uh, the firefighters union has supported and endorsed Vice President Biden. So that was one he could have used. And instead of trying to get his way out of that question, he sort of looked like he was stumped. The president also, the win for him is one that is uh, also bigger in that the tone, the demeanor, the interrupting that so many people were saying just made the debate so unbearable. His supporters were cheering. I mean, we have to remember that that's part of his aesthetic, that the guy who will impose his will, who will get things done, who will make people listen. And I think that there were many in his base that felt like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing in a debate and and thought that that was a win for him. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, we'll take a look into how YouTube is fighting misinformation and conspiracy theories. Crucial to its success and also a major source of misinformation spread was its recommendation system. To stop these sort of videos from getting more exposure, they began tweaking algorithms and teaching AI how to identify and downrank these videos. Still, as we saw with conspiracy videos about the coronavirus pandemic, there's a lot of work to be done. For more on this, we'll speak to Clive Thompson, contributor to Wired. The problem seems to have emerged kind of in the years running up to the 2016 election. YouTube had decided in 2012 that it was going to push for growth so that they would get to the point where people were watching 1 billion hours of YouTube a day, right? And at that point in time in 2012, people were only watching about 100 million hours a day. In comparison to TV, that's like 5 billion. That's a lot more. Even Facebook was like 500 million. So they wanted to have an aggressive growth strategy. And one of the things they did was they worked hard with their recommendation system to try and get it to constantly try and find things that people would want to be absorbed in and to click on, right? And they did a good job. Some outside critics say they did too good a job. That one of the problems that happened was that if you demonstrated that you were interested in like something that was kind of slightly marginal, like the moon landing was faked or something, then it would go, okay, you like conspiracy theories and it would just keep on sending you even crazier and crazier and maybe even dangerous stuff, right? Like, you know, vaccines are a mind control system that you should get away from or ideas eventually became things like QAnon, like, right? right? Like the Pizzagate thing was real, that <laughs> Democrats were child abusers. They made it using... really easy to go down the rabbit hole of, of yeah, any yeah. topic, really. Yeah, exactly. So essentially, the critique that emerged was that you could get in a rabbit hole and the recommendation system would keep on sending you more and more stuff and keeping you glued there. And some evidence suggests that's true. There's been some academic studies. Now, YouTube disputes the quality of those studies, but what those studies found was that at 
peak points leading up to like 2018, as many in, as one in 10 recommendations were to something that was basically sort of a conspiracy theory, right? And so YouTube internally was becoming aware of external concerns about their recommendation system, and they, and they were sort of thinking about what the responsibility was to deal with it. At one of its peaks, it was kind of interesting. These recommendations really were that engine that was driving more watches, and it became 70% of all of its watch time, just things that were coming yeah. up in these recommendations. So, that, I mean, that's amazing. And as you mentioned, maybe they did a too good a job yeah, of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand recommendations are completely central, and they have been for quite some time, to YouTube's overall revenues, right? Because that stat you said, that's exactly right, 70% of everything being watched on YouTube came from someone following a recommendation, right? So yeah, they did this job, they got people really hooked, and there started to be some serious concerns. And again, and coming out of the election, 2016 election, there's even more concerns because there's some great research done by some journalists that would talk to these really crazy conspiracy theorists who were like, you know, Hillary Clinton is mentally ill and she's about to die and whatnot. And they were sort of putting this stuff out there and they were just discovering all this incoming traffic coming in. Where's it coming from? And it was all coming from recommendations. You profiled a guy named mm -hmm. Mark Sargent who was doing a lot of flat earth videos. I think he had at one point more than 1600 videos. He was getting millions of views. Tell us how it worked out for him because he went through this, was getting a lot of success with his videos. And then when they tweaked those algorithms, really his views kind of turned to a trickle only. You know, he started a couple of years ago. And YouTube's recommendation system was key to his success. He has become a globally recognized figure in the flat earth world. And he and everyone in the flat earth world will tell you that recommendations were critical to people finding their stuff. But he was also one of the first people to notice when YouTube rolled out its new system to try and suppress, I guess is a word for it, the frequency with which the recommendation system would recommend conspiratorial content because in January of 2019, that's when YouTube rolls out this new system. And he immediately saw the inbound clicks from recommendations just fall off a cliff. One day they're there and one day they're gone and they never came back basically. So tell us how YouTube adjusted to all of this. You know, mm -hmm, some of yeah. the more fringe stuff, the things that promote violence, all that, you know, a little easier to identify and have those videos yeah. removed, all that. But a lot of this stuff, some of this flatter stuff, you know, other conspiracy theories kind of fall into this borderline yeah. uh, segment in this gray area where it's not really promoting bad stuff. It's just kind of misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. So what YouTube wanted to do is they wanted to have an automated system that would look at a video and try and predict or figure out or categorize, really classify is what they call it, classify whether or not it was quote unquote borderline, right? So now the way that you train an AI is that you show it a lot of examples of something that humans have pointed to and said, hey, here's an example of it, right? So if you and I wanted to train a classifier to look for videos where people are super angry, we'd get, you know, a thousand people and have them look through like thousands of videos. And whenever they found someone really angry, they would say, hey, here's a really angry video. And then we'd have this big bucket of thousands of videos that we know have angry people in them because humans looked at them and said, yes, people are angry in those videos. And then we would get the AI to essentially on its own, try and recognize what are the telltale signals of a video that has angry people in it. And it would look at everything from the transcript of what's inside being said inside the video, or maybe the titles of the video or the comments or the other videos that are watched frequently alongside this one. And they would eventually figure out, okay, now I've got a classifier and if you show me a new video, 
by looking at all those things, I can tell you, you know, with some confidence, this is 30% likely to be an angry video. This is 100% likely to be an angry video. So that's how you make a classifier. The question is, they wanted to make a classifier that would recognize borderline content. What they were trying to get at were things that were like, you know, someone sort of rambling on about how vaccines, they don't really know if they fully trust them and stuff like that. They're not outright saying something that is flat out medical misinformation, but they're just kind of rambling about it. And they're kind of like, well, we don't really want to promote that stuff. That's kind of borderline. So they essentially sat down with their policy people and said, we need to think of 30 or 40 questions that we could ask people that would guide them to sort of look for signals of dodginess, gray area-ness. So they went through their buckets of things that they're concerned about, ranging from things that are close to hate speech, but not things that are close to medical misinformation, but not quite. And they worked at this questionnaire. And then they basically went to a company that has, that employs thousands of humans who rate and classify videos all day long. It's their job. And they said, okay, using this questionnaire, YouTube's going to have you look through videos and look, for example, and you know, we're going to take a video and you're going to rate it based on all these different questions. And they did that with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of videos and tons of people so that by the end of it, they just had this mountain of videos that had all been sort of rated by people based on these questions intended to guide human judgment to figure out, is this gray area? You did go to YouTube HQ to talk to some of the people there, and they kind of showed you how some of this worked. They've claimed success in this a little bit already since the beginning of last year when they rolled this out. They reduced the number of borderline content that was being pushed out by recommendations. But we're going through the pandemic right now. As soon as the pandemic hit, there was already a bunch of stuff going down. We have the famous pandemic video. There was other Mm -hmm. stuff about vaccines and uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. So what's their kind of response to all this? They've been doing a good job already, but this stuff still gets through. When they released this system in 2019, and they sort of refined it, they released it in January 2019, and over the year they refined it. And then by kind of the summer, by really the fall, they're basically saying, okay, we have, to the best of our ability to figure this out, reduced watch time. If you were to think about all the videos that come from recommendations, the stuff that is like dodgy, that's borderline, we've reduced watch time of that by 70%. The problem, as you pointed out, is that what started to happen is that there's this new explosion of COVID-related stuff, and they've been working to try and identify the most egregious stuff that they want to just, frankly, take down, and they've been trying to feed those examples and more borderline examples into their AI. Like, they didn't just make that AI once, the borderline AI. They actually retrained that. Like, they wouldn't tell me the exact amount, but like at least a week, every week or more often, right? So they're constantly feeding it new examples. The problem they're running into... Some people think that recommendations may be less significant now overall for the life and death and virality of kind of BS on YouTube. Because what they're saying is people who look at it, they say, well, you know what's happening now? It's less that people are just following the rabbit hole and finding the radicalizing stuff. What's happening is that they're finding about it from a link on Instagram or a link on a hot Reddit post or a link on Facebook, or frankly, even you will find like, you know, in pandemic thousands and thousands of people on the peripheries of these communities would like do a video saying, you got to go watch Plandemic, here's the link. So it's almost more like more like organic and grassroots forces that now are propelling some of these really problematic videos to massive virality in like 24 or 48 hours, right? It's not necessarily the recommendation system doing it at this point in time. Clive Thompson, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.